The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to read verses 7 to 12, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 7. Mark writes this, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Right. Lord, today may your word go forth with power. Because it alone is powerful. Lord, today may your spirit take your truth and these truths we've been looking at over the last several weeks and what we'll see today. And continue to drive home this idea that you are unlike any other being, any other person, any other man who has ever lived or will ever live. And Lord, I pray that today as we consider these ideas yet again in different ways, that that for each and every person who is sitting in here today, you will prevent them from walking out of this room without having made clear in their hearts and minds what they believe about Jesus. You are not a person to be trifled with, and yet we trifle with you far too often. And so forgive us of that, Lord. And I pray that today you will convict us of that and convince us in our hearts that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so we thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. We ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it was a couple of years ago now, three years ago now, that Time Magazine named Mark Zuckerberg as being the person of the year, man of the year, something like that. And uh, I read that article, and there was a portion of that article that has stuck in my mind ever since. Uh, they were interviewing some friends of his, coworkers of his, people that he had founded Facebook with and, and had you know, spent many, many years with. So these are his, his buddies, okay, people who like him. And they were saying in the article that when you talk to Mark Zuckerberg, quite often if you have been talking to him for a moment or two and you begin to bore him, he just goes away. Like sometimes he's physically just walked away from a conversation just because he got bored with the person he was talking to. Or if he doesn't physically walk away, his mind goes away to something else and he begins thinking about other things that he considers to be more important. Um, They were describing him as being just a little socially odd, which is funny considering he built the world's number one social network, but that's beside the point. Uh, that's, that's where Zuckerberg is at as an individual. And whenever I read that article, I remember thinking to myself that there was an aspect of that that I could kind of identify in my own heart as well. Not so much as a general principle, I hope, because I think when, you, you, when you're talking to casual Stacy, okay, when I'm, I'm off the clock, so to speak, in my mind, I think I can put up with a lot of boring conversations, Uh, But when I'm in business mode, I struggle very much with this same kind of thing. I 
I am a person who feel, at least I would say this of myself, my wife could potentially help with this, but I feel like I'm the kind of person who always lives with an agenda, like stuck in my head. Are you, is anyone else in here like that, where you always have a list of to-dos, and you're always trying to accomplish those things and get them done as quickly and efficiently as you can, because that's what life feels like. It's often just a list of to-dos, and so when I'm in that mode, and I'm working to something, and I've gotten past whatever to-do is on my head, then I'm ready to move on to the next one. I don't want to dilly-dally around and keep beating the thing to death. Let's just, let's just move on and be done. And this is not always good for me. This uh, showed itself on Friday morning uh, this week. We had a, a staff meeting. We do a staff meeting, Jordan and Debbie and I, every other week. And we try to cover things that we need to get done for, for Cornerstone. And this particular Friday, we had a, a lady who was coming to our meeting who was giving us some information that we needed for uh, the church here. And so she shows up, and that's on the agenda, right? She shows up, and she is giving us the information, and we're asking questions, and we've had a conversation around it. And at some point in that conversation, in my mind, we're done. Like, I've gotten everything I need to know from you. You can't tell me anything else that's going to be helpful at this point. I'm done. And without even thinking about what I was doing, I just abruptly said, hey, thanks for coming. I stuck my hand out to her. And as I'm doing this, I'm thinking, no, wait, you can't say that, that abruptly. That's rude. And so I instantly try to back it up as she's awkwardly grabbing my hand now to shake it. And I'm like, I'm not kicking you out, but I was clearly kicking her out at this point. So now I'm trying to like, no, come on, we'll sit down, we'll talk some more. But I had no more desire to talk. And it was really weird. Thankfully, Debbie and Jordan are much kinder than I am and engaged her in a little bit more conversation, but I think she had gotten the point and she quickly left. Um, that's not good, right? I, I need to learn how to, to manage those situations better, how to end better, and, and not just move on in life when I think I'm done with something. And, and that was on my mind this morning, particularly as I was looking at our text here, because we're done with a, a little mini-series we've been in now for the last several weeks. We've been looking at the series of Jesus and these expectations that people had of him and the controversies that erupted out of those expectations, and we're done. Finished. There's no more okay, to look at. There's a part of me just wants to like jump into the next thing and move on, and I'm like, wait, 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 no. We, we need to kind of like stop and make sure we get this. I don't want to rush ahead, be abrupt with it. I want to make sure that as we walk away from this last little section that we've been in here for the last about six weeks or so, and as we get ready to come into this new section, that you're able to tie those pieces together and really understand what Mark is, is trying to do here in the text. And so this morning, I, I just want to take a few minutes with you, kind of in a more casual way, I guess I could say, than what maybe I would do on a, a typical Sunday. But just take a, a few minutes with you to consider where we've been over these past few weeks. To look at some of these larger truths one last time, not to re recap everything I've said, just simply to tie them together in a way that shows you why this has been so important. And then to see how Mark transitions us then into this next section that's coming here in Mark, uh, Mark chapter uh, 3, verses 13 to 35. And, and how does he move us into that? And why does he do it this way? How are these ideas connected? I, I want to kind of just with you about some of these things, very personal things, very very practical things here in the text, and, and just pull it all together in our, our hearts and minds, and hopefully as you walk out, you won't feel like I was rude to you and just said, now move on to the next section, and we'll be done with this, and hopefully God will use it. Well, let's just stop for a few minutes now and consider where we've been, okay? Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through chapter 3, verse 6. We've seen Jesus interacting with four 
types of expectations. And I would see if you remember them, but I don't like being disappointed. So I'll give them to you. The the first one we saw was Jesus versus these theological expectations in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Remember that the Pharisees had an expectation of Jesus, and that was that he was just a man. And yet here comes Jesus saying to this paralyzed guy, your sins are forgiven. And they rightly recognize no one can say that but God. They don't think that Jesus is God. And so he shows them that he is God. Not only does he have the authority and the power to forgive sins, but he has the authority and power to tell this man to rise up and walk. And so he does. And the man does. And he shows everyone who's around that their expectations of him just at face value are not correct. He's not just a man. He's not just like everyone else in the room. This guy is God. Second, we looked at Jesus versus these personal expectations in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. This is where he calls Levi to be one of his disciples. Levi is a tax collector. And, and, and in the first century, you don't, you don't associate with tax collectors if you're a good Jew. That's, they're, they're off limits. They're wicked. They're sinful. They're, they're terrible people. Why would you ever purposely be around them? But not only does Jesus call one to be his disciple, he goes and has dinner with him. And man, it's a, it's a big deal. And so they come and they say, why? Why, Jesus, would you do this? You're, you're not living up to the personal expectations we would have of someone of your status as a teacher. And he says a comment to them that is damning. And if you have not gotten the full impact of this comment, I say it again so that it sinks into your mind. He says, I, like a physician, didn't come to help those who are well. I came to help the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. And he's saying to them there, if you're righteous, you don't need me. If you're righteous, you don't need a savior. Of course, we all know that the real truth is that no one is righteous. But if you think you're righteous, then you don't need Jesus. Just ignore him. Go on. You're fine. Righteous people don't need saviors. Jesus didn't come for them. Them. He came for, he came for sinners. He came to heal the sick. And that's what he does here. And it, it just shatters their understanding of how someone of his status in life should act. He's not fitting in their mold, and so there's this controversy that erupts around it. Number three, we saw him versus these religious expectations in chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. This is where the disciples of John, disciples of the Pharisees, come up and say, hey, why don't don't your disciples fast? We fast, they fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Because that was just what you did. If you're religious, you fast, right? If you're religious, you go to church. If you're religious, you get baptized. If you're religious, there's communion. Okay, if you're religious, you fast. And Jesus, in his responses there, tells them, look, you don't understand the nature of religion in and of itself. I am the center of religion. I am the goal, the purpose, and the end of all religion. And I have not come to fit into your system. I've come to replace it. I'm not going to put new wine in old wineskins. I'm not going to put new cloth on an old fabric. It won't work. He's coming to replace their understanding of what it means to be religious, of of what religion is. Religion will no longer be about a system. It'll be about a savior. And he will be that person. And everything will change as a result of it. They had no concept of that. They saw everything as being about the system. And Jesus, he doesn't fit that mold. And so there's controversy. Number four, 
We saw Jesus versus these cultural expectations in chapter 2, verse 23, to chapter 3, verse 6. And this is where we've been the last few weeks talking about the Sabbath and and how they viewed that. And I hope that was helpful for you. I hope you learned a lot just through that section, not just about the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, but, but about how to view God and how to view God's commands, because that's really the issue at stake here. And in their cultural view of the Sabbath, they had come to view not just this command, but all the commands as shackles that were designed to force men into God's service, as if you could do that at the cultural level. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, that there's, there's, that's not the way you serve God. Service to God isn't about external shackles that you place on people to force them to do what you think God wants them to do. No, real service to God is done from the heart, out of love for God. And in doing so, so in serving him in that way, you find that his commands are there to give, to give freedom, not bondage, because God's not interested in forced service. He never was. And so these were the four controversies that we have looked at over the last few weeks and just kind of walked through each one, hopefully clearly along the way. Hopefully you got those points. But I wanted to take just a few minutes with you this morning and now just kind of talk to you really personally, really pastorally about some of those ideas because we hear those things and we may recognize their truthfulness but do we really recognize how those ideas still impact and affect us today? And so what I just simply want to point out for a few minutes here is kind of part one of this message is that men, women around us today, maybe some of you in this room right now, I don't know, still want to view Jesus in these four ways. They want to. Notice I didn't say this that they do. I said that they want to view him in these same ways. For example, many people want a Jesus that meets their theological expectations. They want a Jesus that meets whatever beliefs they come preloaded with as they come to him. They want him to fit into their mold of who God is and and what God wants. They don't want to believe in him as he really is, but if they are, we're being honest, they want to believe in him as they really are. Many, many people who say they believe in Jesus simply turn Jesus into a glorified version of themselves. If you were to get right down to it, they don't want a Jesus who talks about sin. They don't want a Jesus who proclaims an exclusive hold on truth. That, that when he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. They don't like that because they don't want to think of Jesus in that way as excluding everyone who doesn't believe in him. They don't want a Jesus who offers salvation to only those who come in faith. They don't want a Jesus who is the coming just judge of the earth. And so to this day, as we talk to the people around us, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and they talk about Jesus, just understand that many, many people simply want to believe in a Jesus that meets their own personal theological expectations. But if we're going to be honest and fair with the text, if we're going to let the scriptures speak for themselves, then please hear this. I will repeat it four times at least this morning. We have to take him as he is. Do you understand this? Do you believe this, Christian? Do you believe that you cannot change Jesus to fit your own personal theological choices? 
that you take him as he is or you don't take him at all. Number two, to this day, people want a Jesus that reinforces their own personal convictions. Whatever personal convictions they have in life about whatever subject you're discussing, they want a Jesus who meets those, who reinforces those identical convictions, whether or not the text would confirm that. Amazing to me how many things people who claim to be followers of Christ are okay with and want Jesus to be okay with as well. So next Sunday night, we're going to talk about homosexuality. We've never gotten this much buzz from a, a, a... topic before, and I get why we're getting it, okay? There are so many people out there who want Jesus to be okay with homosexuality, whether he is or not. They don't care about what he actually says, what the scriptures say. They they have a personal conviction that they're coming into it with, and because of that, they want Jesus to be okay with it as well. On the flip side, you'll see people who are very legalistic who want Jesus to reinforce their convictions as well. So, you know, Jesus hates drums, right? You know, stupid topic perhaps. But you see that kind of thing of people coming along and they just make these statements about, well, Jesus wouldn't be happy with this. And I'm like, where is that exactly? Or conversely, that Jesus is okay with this. And again, I'm going, I don't think so because that's, you know. It's just amazing as you talk to people just day in, day out in the regular conversations of life, how often they want a Jesus who simply reinforces their own personal convictions about whatever subject you're talking about. And in both of those examples, by the way, they're kind of dumb perhaps, but the issue isn't whether or not those, the scriptures actually say what people want them to say. That, that seems to never be the issue. The issue is always that they want Jesus to be okay with or not okay with whatever they think about those things. But number two here, if we're going to be honest and fair, then we have to take Jesus as he is. Christian, are you willing to let Jesus shape your personal convictions in any and every area? To throw away those that are no good to embrace what he believes? Are you willing to do that? Because if you're not going to take him as he is, then guess what? You can't take him at all. Number three, they want a Jesus that can be satisfied by their religious inclinations. In other words, many people want a Jesus that can be satisfied by the performance of whatever religious rites and practices they hold dear. So as long as as their concept of Jesus uh, makes him satisfied with showing up one time a week to a service, or as long as their concept of Jesus is satisfied by the fact that they put $5 in an offering plate, or as long as it's satisfied by the fact that they took communion, or by the fact that they were baptized, or by the fact that they did any other external thing, okay? As long as their view of Jesus is satisfied by that, they are perfectly happy. They don't want a Jesus who actually demands something from them. Who, who is interested in more than their external actions, who actually cares about their internal desires and where their heart is actually going. As long as they're living the good life, most of the time, that should be good enough for him, right? They, they can't fathom a Jesus who wouldn't be satisfied with, with, with something that they're doing, that, the fact that he's not willing to accept that. Why, why, why would he want more than this? Whatever the this is in their life. They want a Jesus who's satisfied merely with the external motions of religion and who doesn't demand a radical inward change. 
But that's what Jesus died for. To call us to a radical inward change. That you're not the same person after Jesus that you were before him. If you're the same person after that you were before, then I would question whether Jesus was ever in the middle. And so Christian, I say to you, are you willing to be honest and fair and accept Jesus as he is? A Jesus who is not perfectly happy with your external religion, but one who demands a, a radical inward change. You, you have to take him as he is, or again, you don't take him at all. Number four, many people around us want a Jesus that, that doesn't rock the boat of their cultural presuppositions. They want a culturally acceptable Jesus. One that, one that is politically correct. A, a Jesus who won't expect his followers to stand out or go against the grain of culture. A non-offensive Jesus. That's what they want. Because as long as Jesus doesn't demand too much from us that might possibly infringe on who wants to be my Facebook friend, right? I, I'm, that's fine. But if Jesus is going to make demands of me that might separate me from this or that, ooh, oh no. I'm not sure I'm interested in that. No, they, they, don't, they don't want a Jesus who rocks the boat of cultural presupposition, but here it is the last time. I think if we're going to be honest and fair. Guess what? You have to accept Jesus as he is, but you don't accept him at all. Because Jesus is all of these things that most people don't want him to be. That's the truth. If you just take him as he is and you're honest and fair with what he says, he's all of these things. He claims to be God. He talks about sin. He pursues sinners. He denounces external religiosity. He demands internal change. He's offensive. He's controversial. You can't change him into your image. You can't remake him into something he's not. And you cannot, as a result of all of that, remain neutral towards him. You just can't. And that's the section that we've been in. And while, while the section we've been in is ending, this is the very idea that Mark wants to drive home next. That you cannot look at all the things we've seen here in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 6. You cannot go through those controversies and see him say the things he says and watch the expectations be broken and walk away with, oh, I'll think about it later. I'm just kind of neutral toward him. I don't really have an opinion one way or the other. You can't do that. And so he's going to transition us with three simple ideas in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. That, those verses I read here at the beginning are a transition. It's actually just moving us slightly from where the idea began here about who Jesus is to now, how are you going to respond and so I, I want to just walk through these, these verses really quickly. It, there's not much here for us to spend a lot of time on, but I want you to see how Mark is transitioning us from these, these ideas we've seen to where we're going. Notice, number one, that despite the controversy surrounding him, his influence is spreading. You see this in verses 7 and 8. He, he names a whole bunch of places where Jesus is drawing crowds from. So he mentions Galilee, which I'm putting our map back up here just to keep us all in tune with what's going on and, and how Mark is building this, because this is actually kind of interesting. Jesus is, is here in Galilee. This is his home base. And so, of course, he's drawing lots of crowds from here. But he also says that he's drawing a lot of crowds from Judea and Jerusalem as well. That's down here in the south. 
Jerusalem's the capital. This is the power center, the religious center, the, the money center of Israel. This is the, the home for most of them. They live here. These are all pretty much Jewish, Jewish people that he's talking to primarily. But that's not all he's drawing from. He says he's also drawing crowds from Idumea, which is way down here in the south, in the Negev. And these are a lot of half-Jews who live down here. They've intermingled with Gentiles, and they're not looked upon kindly, but they've heard about Jesus as well. And they're flocking to him, not only from there, but from this area beyond the Jordan around Decapolis and Perea. These people are coming from those areas to hear Jesus speak. These are a lot of half-Jews, half-breeds. They've intermingled, and they're not liked by most people, but Jesus is reaching them. Not only that, but he's drawing crowds from Tyre and Sidon up here in the north. These are mainly Gentile areas that, that his fame has spread to. He's going to go there eventually. He's going to interact with a woman who's going to have more faith than anyone in Israel, he'll say. They're hearing about him. They're coming to him. And so as you put all of this together, you realize that his influence has spread across all Israel. Mark specifically shows us that Jesus' influence has spread everywhere where Israel used to be when they first entered the land. Everywhere. He is reaching Israel. And this influence is spreading despite these controversies. People want to hear him. And you see in the next few verses that despite the controversies surrounding him, he's incredibly popular. That's why they're all coming, right? Twice in Mark chapter uh, 3, verses 7 and 8, Mark notes the great crowds that were following and listening to him. And the crowd is so large and so desperate, verses 9 and 10, that there's a real sense of danger to Jesus. They might crush him. So he has to get in a boat just to be safe so he can teach these people. They're pressing around him to touch him. They, they want to be healed, and he has to get away from them. He's popular, right? That's good. We, want, we like popular. But it's not for the right reasons. They're coming to be healed. This is good to be healed, but they're not crowding around him to hear him teach. It's good to come to Jesus for just about any reason, but you would hope that there was more to it than this, but that's all that Mark presents here that he's popular, just maybe not for the reasons we would hope. And despite all these controversies surrounding him, he remains the son of God, verses 11 to 12. You see that here in the end of this section. He's still healing people, right? We started with that in chapter one. He's still doing it. He's still healing people. He still has authority over demons. They're saying to him when they see him, you are the son of God. They're the, they are the most orthodox people around, the demons. Because when they see him, they cannot remain neutral, right? They can't. They have to confess who he is. And in that sense, they're the most honest, fair individuals in the story up to this point. Because they recognize Jesus as the Son of God and they respond to him as he really is, not as they want him to be. And it's this idea of response that Mark is moving us toward next. Because we're getting ready to go into this new section here. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. And all I'm going to do here is just give you an overview so you see how it all fits together. Watch this. Mark's point is, I believe, that you and I cannot remain neutral. Can't. You, you've seen all this stuff now. You, you've, you've seen who Jesus claims to be. You can't 
remain neutral. Let's be honest and fair about what we understand about him up to this point. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is now living in Capernaum, is claiming to be God come in human form. Do you understand that? Is that clear? He's claiming to be God come in human form, and he's performing miracles and these signs and wonders in the sight of all the people to prove to them that he is God come in the flesh, that he is, or excuse me, this is who he's claiming to be, and everyone's going to have to respond. And there's going to be, really, two responses. In fact, I would argue there can only be two responses. Response number one is you either ex- you accept that, or response number two, you reject it. Either he's telling the truth or he's not telling the truth. He can't both be God and not be God at the same time, correct? So you're going to see this played out here in this next section. If he's not telling the truth, if he's not really God come in the flesh, there are only two possible options again. Either A, he knows he's not telling the truth, in which case it makes him a charlatan. It makes him a liar here in the text. And if you look down at Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, notice that that is exactly what the Pharisees accuse him of now. They go from simply being antagonistic toward him to now accusing him. You cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. You're not the son of God. You're the son of Satan. This is the whole unpardonable sin section. So if you're excited about that, that's coming, okay? I don't know why you would be excited about that, but that's beside the point. They, they see Jesus doing this stuff and they say, he's a liar. He actually does these things by the power of Satan. They don't believe him. They think he's purposefully misleading the people and that's the response. But there's another possible outcome here. It could be that even though he's not telling the truth, he thinks he is. Maybe he's crazy. Maybe he's out of his mind. And if you look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, what does his family accuse him of? What do they think about him? They think he's out of his mind. They're like, I played with him when we were kids. Like, he was my older brother, and, and he now thinks he's the son of God. What happened? <laughs> I mean, if you have an older brother who all of a sudden started going around saying, I'm the son of God, how would you respond? We know he has four brothers. We know he has at least two sisters. So there's at least six siblings all younger than him. And now their oldest brother is traveling around Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And they think he's lost it. They think he's crazy. And you know what? That's a valid response. Maybe he is crazy. Maybe what he says is a lie. But he thinks it's true. He's well-intentioned, but he's off his rocker. Who knows? That's a valid response. But there's, of course, another way to look at this. What if he's telling the truth? What if he actually is the Son of God? Come in human form. And that would make him Christ. That would make him Lord of all creation. And this is the conclusion of the 12 disciples named in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, who agree in that passage not simply to follow him, but to go out and proclaim that same message as well. Now it's not just Jesus saying, I am the Son of God. Now it's Peter and James and Andrew and Simon and Matthew going out saying, He is the Son of God. That's a big jump for them. That's a big change. That's a commitment on their part to believe that this guy really is who and what he says he is. And if you're going to be honest and fair with Jesus, these are your only three options. Either he is crazy 
or he's a charlatan, or he's the Christ. Either he is a liar who is deceiving people, he's a lunatic, he's out of his mind, or he is the Lord of all. You have no other options. And you can reject him as a liar or a charlatan, you can reject him as a lunatic or a crazy man, or you can accept him for what he claims to be, and that is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, and the Lord of all creation. You have to respond. You have to respond. You can't remain neutral. You can't make him into something that you want him to be. He's either Lord or he's not. His words are either true or they're not. And there is no middle ground. Lord Jesus, help us, help every single one of us in here to make a decision. It would be far better, far better to simply reject you outright than to try to remake you into something you're not. You have come with a clear, clear message that you are the Christ and we can either believe that or reject it. But I pray, Lord, I pray that today, even by your spirit, that you will open the eyes of those who have not accepted it so that they will believe, that they will place their faith in you, the one come from God, You, the Savior, you, the Christ. Lord, help them to believe, open their eyes, give them the ability to believe. Lord, I pray that all of us, as we go forth and we talk with the people around us, that we won't be satisfied just hearing them talk about your name, but not really understanding where they're at. What Jesus do they believe in? We don't know half the time because we never try to find out. Lord, forgive us for wanting to remake you at times into things you're not. Lord, I pray that through our section that we've been in over the last few weeks and and now this one that's to come, that as we go through this and we consider what it means to be a follower, to be a disciple, to be one who goes out as a representative, that, Lord, you will take those truths and these concepts and you will send us out as a very non-neutral group, a group committed to you you and who you are and committed to spreading that message to everyone around us. And so I thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a convicting power unlike anything else known to man. And we give this time to you and ask your spirit to take it now and use it in each and every heart in here. In Jesus' name, amen.